glad you said yes, because I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> Truth be told. <laughs> so um, a little backstory. Um, I was born in a Catholic home. My mom graduated from an all-girls Catholic high school uh, on Maui. Um, I'm Hawaiian. My, all of my family is in Hawaii, in the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, my dad is from Oahu, and they met and married, and then they moved to California and started a family. And uh, I have one uh, older sister. She's uh, three years older than me. And my mom carried that faith into her adulthood and ultimately into her marriage. So what that meant for us is we were in Catholic Mass every single Sunday without fail. I often say that if I ever prayed a prayer as a child, it was that my parents would sleep in on Sunday. But that very rarely happened. My mom was just super duper committed. So anyway, uh, we were at Mass on Sunday, and then we were at Catechism on Wednesday, and that's basically like youth group for Catholic kids, basically. And uh, our church, St. Christopher's, that is still there in West Covina, back in the day they shared a parking lot with um, uh, a skating rink called Skate Junction. So my mom would drop my sister and I off, and we would wave goodbye, and as soon as she pulled out of the parking lot, we would jump the wall and go to the skating rink. And we, we mastered. We had it timed with precision, and we'd come back, and we'd be standing there um, when she came to pick us up. And um, right when she would pull out of the parking lot, every week she would look in the rearview mirror at us and say, you know, how did it go? And I got so good at making up these, like, dramatic stories about how amazing God was. I think she might have thought I was going to be a priest one day because of these, you know, elaborate stories I would tell her. Anyway, when I was 12 years old, my parents uh, bought me an electric bass guitar and a bass amp. And I did what all kids did back then. Uh, we started a band. That's what kids used to do back in the day. That's where the term garage band came from. Kids actually starting bands in garages. So I connected with a friend who had a guitar amp and another guy had a drum kit. And we got together, and the first song we ever played together was Detroit Rock City from Kiss. It's just a fun fact. Um, I remember thinking back then, like, we're pretty amazing. We might be able to go on tour with Kiss. That never happened. Looking back in retrospect, I'm pretty sure we were terrible. But uh, we thought we were amazing, you know, just turn it up to 11 and, and, you know, and it's all good. Fast forward, when I was 14 years old, uh, my sister was dating, uh, my older sister was dating a guy who was in a local uh, punk rock band. And uh, I remember back in the day that I had some cool points because my sister was dating a guy from a band that was very well known locally. And uh, they had a gig that came up and... Uh, their bass player was going to be out of town. So he asked my sister, do you think your parents would let your, your little brother play? And she's like, I have no idea. You know, let's ask them. So they asked my parents, you know, can your 14-year-old son go and play in this band of 20-year-olds, you know, at this gig? And my folks, God bless them, they're so naive. My mom just smiled and said, that sounds like a ton of fun, yes. I was shocked, but I didn't say anything. I just kept quiet. 
So that, that gig ended up being a backyard party. And uh, the bands played on a stage made out of uh, milk crates and plywood. Now, if you don't know what a milk crate is, you're just too darn young. <laughs> too young. And uh, we were in a backyard, and I remember the grass was all dead. So it was like dead grass and, and just dirt. And, you know, these were punk rock bands. So there was a big mosh pit. You know, they were slam dancing in the backyard. And it created this huge dust bowl. I'll never forget it. We were on that stage playing, and I could barely see like a foot in front of me from all the, the dust that was being, you know. And the party ended when a helicopter, a police helicopter, um, hovered right over the yard, and they shined the light right down in the middle of that mosh pit. I don't know who told them that was a good idea, but it just made everybody rage harder and longer, and you know what I mean? And everybody was like, you know, flipping the bird up to the helicopter, and it was just, it was just crazy. So finally, all these cop cars came and pulled in front of the house and ran into the backyard and chased all of us out. And I got home really late that night, like later than I think anybody ever walked into our house. And it was real quiet, and it was dark, and I, I, I was kind of tiptoeing my way through the, through the hallway and into my room, and I shut the door real gently. And I turned on the light, and I was like, that was awesome! Oh! I just got a taste of something amazing. Now, the next day at my house was Saturday, and that was chores day. So basically, they used to, you know, clean the toilets and vacuumed and, you know, dusted and all that kind of stuff. And that was the day that my parents really let their hair down. That's when they would um, put on, like, you know, Neil Diamond and Kenny Rogers and Crystal Gale, and they would turn it up real loud so you could hear it over the vacuum. And it was like, all right, Mom and Dad, turn that up. And uh, I remember, like, feeling amazing about what had happened the night before, but kind of feeling nervous about having to talk to my parents about it. And uh, I actually came up with a full-blown lie in my mind. Like, I, was, I figured they probably went to sleep around 9, so I was going to tell them I got home at, like, 10, 10.30, even though it was closer to 2 o'clock. So I had rehearsed this whole story about how everyone was, you know, like drinking water and reading the Bible and stuff. <laughs> like I just had it all laid out. And, uh, but, you know, each hour went by that we were cleaning and whatnot, and I thought, I might not even have to bust out the lie. Like they're not even asking me about it. And then out of nowhere, my dad says, hey, about last night. I said, oh, boy, here it comes. He said, your mom and I talked about it. And we thought to ourselves, we don't even know what goes on at these things. We have no idea what they're doing. And then, of course, you got home after 2.30. I was like, oh, man, they knew. <laughs> I thought I was real quiet, but they, they knew. Um, he said, so we talked about it, and we think that maybe you should wait a couple years before doing that again. Let's revisit it when you're like 16 or 17. Now, as a kid, all I heard him say is, I hate you, and I want to destroy your dreams. That's all I heard, because I'm a kid, right? So I hear it through that filter. Fun fact, I've gone on to minister to a lot of young people over the years. 
and sometimes they bring the craziest stuff to me. But I never just, you know, shake my hand to it or disregard it or just kind of poo-poo their ideas because to them, this is real important stuff. Anyway, that's just a fun fact. So after my dad made his announcement and I was devastated and brokenhearted, uh, my response to that was that a few days later, I packed up everything I thought was important and I ran away from home at 14. And I never went back. So a lot changed in my life. I went from being an honor roll student and a band geek who played, you know, the trombone and the clarinet and the marching band, um, being just an all-around good kid to a whole lot changing after I ran away. Between 14 and 18, I was obviously a runaway. Um, I was a high school dropout. I was a teen father expecting my second child by the time I was 18. Started using drugs, became a full-blown drug addict. Started dealing drugs so that I'd always have enough for myself and make some money. Um, I was homeless and I started to get arrested. So a whole lot changed between 14 and 18. And uh, I was getting arrested, L.A. County, Riverside County, San Bernardino County. And eventually, a judge sentenced me to one year in the county jail. And at the time, that was the max that they could give you without sending you to state prison. And she told me that. She basically said, like, this is it. Like, if I see you again, I'm going to throw the book at you, you know? So I went and did that one year. They sent me off to an old army barracks out by Magic Mountain called Wayside, and I did the year. By the way, I came here to talk to somebody in this room today. So the day I got out from doing that year, I literally got high that day. Another fun fact is I've ministered to a ton of different kinds of people over the years, and I found that you can narrow down all people into two groups. One group are those who have never used drugs, and they don't know a single solitary person who ever has either. The other group are people who have either used themselves, struggled themselves, or watched a loved one or a family member struggle. Those are the two groups. Group A, they hear my story and they scratch their heads and go, why didn't you just stop? I'm like, where were you with that amazing piece of advice? You could have changed the whole trajectory of my life. Wow. The chains of addiction are real. Whether you see them or not, they're real. I was a slave to them. Just to give you a little snapshot on the type of human being I was, I used to get my, uh, my infant daughter, and uh, when their mother would leave the apartment, I would um, take the playpen, you know, the one you push the floor and the four walls pop up? I would take that playpen and set it outside, so outside of our apartment, and I would put my infant daughter in it outside, and I would go in and get high. And in my mind, I used to think, you got this parenting thing down. Look at you.
So it was only a matter of time before I found my way into her courtroom again, and she kept her word, and she sent me to state prison for four years. Now, uh, you know, I fit right into state prison. I mean, I had seen some movies, and I'm not going to lie, I was scared. I was thinking, man, you've really messed up now. But I had become like this other human being, and I fit right into that culture in there. So I just started doing my time and figured I'll get out and I'll get high and I'll just continue to ride this train and live this the only life that I know. Now, a lot of people ask me, dude, what was the hardest thing about prison? My God, we've seen the movies. And I always tell them, the hardest thing for me was mail call. And for those of you that don't know, it is what you think it might be. It's an inmate or a guard comes in and hands out the mail five or six days a week. They call out your name or your number because you're a number in there. And uh, they used to come in and do mail call, and they never called my name because I had burned every bridge with every person who ever cared about me or loved me. I was in and out of my parents' lives, and I used to just manipulate and lie and steal. I knew exactly how to manipulate my mother. I used to, I knew the exact key words to really tug on her heartstrings. And I used to call her and say, Mom, I'm, I'm tired. I want, a, I want a new start. I don't want to live this way anymore. She'd say, come home, son. And I'd go there, and I'd sleep for a week. Then I'd wake up and I'd eat for a week. And then I'd head for the door, stopping at her purse or her jewelry box or whatever. And then away I went. Six, eight months later, Mom, I'm ready to change. And we did this dance, I don't know how many times. Anyway, so my family wasn't writing me any cards saying, you know, wish you were here. <laughs> They were just like, you know, rejoicing that they had a moment's peace where I wasn't there to turn their whole world upside down every day. Now, another fun fact, my cellmate had a girlfriend that would write him every single day without fail, and I mean every day. And she used to send like, we're not talking one page, like four, five, six pages every day. Who's got that much? I, I, don't, I never understood it. I just never understood it. And she would um, take the pages and spray them with perfume, and then she'd tuck them in the envelope and seal it up real quick. And then she'd put lipstick on real thick and kiss it all over. So every day, this dude's getting, like, all these little kisses hand-delivered. And he'd open that envelope, and the cell would just fill with this beautiful aroma. I hated that guy. I'm like, every day? That beautiful aroma was just a reminder of every horrible, selfish thing I had ever done that led to nobody writing me in prison. Anyway, all of a sudden, one day, I hear my name at mail call. And for a moment, I thought, no, because he said it again, and it was me. 
and I wanted to run and get that card in my hand. But, you know, you got to be cool in there. So I just walked like, I got nothing better to do. So I got the envelope, and I started walking away, and I glanced down at it, and sure enough, it was to me. It was my name, my inmate number, but the return address I didn't recognize, and I didn't recognize the person's name, but at that point, I didn't care. So I got to my cell, tore into this envelope, and pulled something out. I was so excited until I saw what it was, and basically what it was was like a Christianese Hallmark card. It was like a greeting card, but it was religious, you know, talking about like love and God and whatever, and I was like, my goodness, my first card, and it's this nonsense, really? And I was kind of feeling defeated and, you know, and just, just pouting. And then for one moment I thought, man, it feels good hearing my name called at Union Cross. So I told myself, Richard, hold on to this feeling as long as you can because this is never going to happen again. But to my surprise, those cards continued to come twice a month, every month for over two years. Every card talking about Jesus and God and love and Jesus and God and love and Jesus. I'm like, do you have a cat or something you can tell me about? Nope. Jesus, God, love. Jesus, God. Now, I read every word of every card. And I, I, those things were my treasure. I tore into that first envelope, but after that, I opened them real slow and, and meaningful I didn't want them to bend. I didn't want any creases. I filed them away. They were my treasure. Even though I could care less about the contents, they were my treasure. Because that's what you do in there. You treasure the weirdest things in that culture. Today, I'll, it'll take me a week to walk to the curb, to the mailbox, you know? But in then, then it was my treasure. And then just a few months before my release date, I found my way into the prison chapel one night. I wasn't there for the message or for church. I was there for a selfish reason, but I was there nonetheless. And there was a guy from the outside. He was dressed in street clothes, and he had a guitar, and he sang and talked, and I didn't really pay any attention. But at the end, he said, I want everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads. And I was seated in, seated in the very back row. So from where I was seated, I could see the back of everyone's heads. And I could see that they had kind of done this, you know. So I assumed everyone had closed their eyes and bowed their heads. Now, I didn't because I wasn't one of them. And I wasn't going to do their religious dance. I wasn't mad at anybody, but I wasn't going to participate. So the speaker, he scans the room until he makes eye contact with me. The only person looking back at him at that point. And I just gave him a gentle. Now, he didn't flinch, look away, blink, anything. He just kept his gaze locked on me. I thought, well, maybe he didn't see me. I mean, I'm pretty sure he saw me, but maybe he didn't. So I went in for the two-hander. He doesn't blink, flinch, turn away, nothing. 
Now, we're having this exchange. Everyone else is, it's silent. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. It's just he and I doing this weird thing. And back then, I was zero to 60 as far as getting mad. I still have my moments today. And I was instantly mad. Instantly. So I was a little more aggressive, like, go, you idiot. He, do, he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't, I'm thinking, are we going to be here all night? So finally I went, I guess the only way out is to close my eyes and bow my head. And I was mad. But I bowed my head and I closed my eyes. And as soon as I closed my eyes, I saw something. And I liken it to when you're going to bed at night and the room is real bright and then you reach over to shut the lamp off on the nightstand and your room goes from being super bright to super dark in a millisecond and you can still see flashes of images behind. You know what I'm saying? That's what I liken it to. Okay? I bow my head. I close my eyes. Instantly, I see the faces of my two daughters. Instantly. Alternating back and forth, oldest to youngest, back to the oldest, back to the youngest, just their faces alternating. And immediately a wave of guilt and shame comes crashing down on me. Now don't get me wrong, I had been shameful and guilty, felt guilt about it many times over the years. But when those times would come on the outside, I could get high and numb that and I didn't have to face it. But I didn't have any any mind-altering substances to reach for. I just had me. And I thought, oh, man, what a hand these girls have been dealt in life to have me as a dad. So I'm having this moment, and it felt like it was going on forever before someone tapped me on the shoulder, and I opened my eyes, and it was another inmate, like right here. Right in my personal space, actually. <laughs> I was kind of taken aback when I opened my eyes and saw him there. And all he said is, hey, man, you want to go up? What does that even mean? I have no idea what that means. I, I saw the documentaries about you guys. I guess you dance with rattlesnakes or something. So maybe that's what he meant. I wasn't sure. But before I could even really process what he said, I blurted out, yes. And I found out what it meant when he marched me right down the center aisle, right to the front, until I was standing a foot from the guy I wanted to kill 30 seconds ago. And he's like, we're going to pray for you. And they're clapping. And it all happened super fast. Boom, 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 boom. I'm back on my bunk. It's lights out. My head's on the pillow, and the last thought I had before I dozed off is, what did you just do? And I fell asleep. First thought I had when I woke up the next day, all the cards I got. Twice a month, every month for over two years. You know, the God love, Jesus, God love. It was just there. That thought was just there when I woke up. And I remember one of them had a phone number in it, so I dug through them, and I found the one with the phone number. And back then, they used to have uh, phone booths on the prison yard. You would actually step into a phone booth and go through the motions of making a collect call to the person you're calling. Another fun fact, 
if I tell my kids my story about a phone booth, they think I'm making it up. They're like, a glass box with a phone in it on the side of the road? Are you getting high again, Dad? I'm like, no, these things really existed. Anyway, I step into the phone booth, and I go through the motions making the collect call. And the person you're calling, here's a recording. It says, you're getting a call right now from a really bad person. And then you wait and see if they're going to accept the charges. I have no idea what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, what breaks the silence? A little old lady's voice. Hello. I said, hello? She said, who is this? I'm thinking, lady, you just heard the recording. But I didn't say that. I told her. I told her my name. And she said, before I could get my last name out of my mouth, she cut me off and said, have you given your life to Jesus yet? Can't make this stuff up. And I said, well, I, I went up last night. Did, does that count? And she said, well, praise the Lord. Now it's time for you to speak in tongues. Here we go. I'm not going to lie. She proceeded to freak me out. Okay? Like big time. Like this, this old Catholic kid had never heard any crazy like that before, okay? And she just like went. And she would come up for air and she would tell me, jump in when you're ready. And then she just went. And it was, uh, it was like a 15-minute call, but it felt more like 15 months. And um, uh, a recording came on saying, you know, you've got two minutes left or whatever it is letting you know that the call's about to end and to wrap it up. And she ignored it, and she just went on. And um, she was like in mid-chant, you know, like, Shanda! and her voice cut off. And I put the receiver back on the cradle, and I went, note to self, don't ever call this number again, <laughs> ever. And then a short time after making that call, I was released from that prison. And I was released on January 8th of 1994. And this coming January 8th will be 29 years ago I walked out of there. And I got plugged in at a local church bec only because a condition of my parole was that I had to uh, be in a 12-step group. And I had to get this document signed every week to prove to my parole officer that I had gone. So as it happened, there was one closest to where I was living. It was a church. So I went there, and there were men in that group that were active in that church's men's ministry. And these guys were on me. Like as soon as I walked in the door, like all of their nice was just on me. And I'm not going to lie. It made me like a little sick, like I wanted to puke a little bit. I'm like, these guys are just too nice. And they were just nice, 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 nice. And I'm like, oh. And it's, at, as that meeting came to a close, that first meeting, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, look, I'm just here to get my paper signed. I'm not here to make any friends or anything. But as that meeting was coming to an end, they said, hey, we've got a retreat coming up. You should go. And I said, hey, what's a retreat? 
So they said, it's, it's awesome. It's all the men. We get together. We're up in the mountain. We're, at the, we're in this cabin. We bunk together. I said, that sounds a whole lot like where I just came from. <laughs> and I have no interest. Like, you haven't sold this to me at all. Not at all. So immediately I tried to come up with excuses. Well, does it cost anything? I don't have. We'll pay your way. So, well, I, I really don't have transportation. We'll pick you up. Well, I, you know, I don't have a toothbrush. I don't have a sleep. We've got you covered. These guys would not take, they wouldn't take no for an answer. They would literally not take no for an answer. So where was I a couple weeks later? I was up on this mountain at this retreat. And I regretted it. As soon as we stepped onto the property, I regretted it. But I was trapped. And I was in a cabin like 12 or something. I forget the number of the cabin. But I remember everybody being really excited about what cabin I was in. They're like, what cabin are you in, bro? And I'm like, I think it's 12. They're like, oh, man. <laughs> what does that mean? And I guess uh, there were some like super duper spiritual like heroes in there or something, I guess. So they couldn't believe I was in there. Like, you're in there with, you know, John and Jim and who else? Okay. So the first night, I found out what kind of a cabin I was in. Now, the days are long. Any guy who's been to a retreat, you're tired. You want to sleep at the end of the day. And we go into our cabin after a long day, and these guys are, like, rolling up their sleeves, just getting ready. They're like, time for worship and prayer. Oh, no, no, no. And they would pray, and they'd sing, and it's like every night. And um, the very last night of the retreat, like, I'm exhausted. Oh, I'm exhausted. And they're like, we're going to do something a little different tonight. And I was like, oh, thank God. Maybe we're going to bypass all this, you know. They're like, tonight, each one of us is going to get into the center of a circle, and the rest of us are going to pray for the person in the circle. And every, they're all, like, high-fiving each other like it's the best idea ever. And I'm like, that's like the worst idea ever that I ever heard. So they got in a circle, and when they got in their circle, I got onto one of the lower bunks, and I didn't get in the circle. And then one at a time, one of them would get in the middle, and they'd pray. And there was a guy sitting on one of the upper bunks uh, playing a guitar and singing while this was all happening. And um, I remember I was watching intently because... When, it, when they came to the last guy, I wanted to make sure that at that point I pushed myself as far against the wall as I could and stacked up some pillows and blankets so that they wouldn't call on me. I know this sounds crazy, but I really did it. I was a full-grown man hiding behind pillows on a lower bunk. I did it. I'm not proud, but I did it. So I'm watching, right? They're getting down. Three, third to the last guy, second to the last, the last guy's in the circle. So I am just trying to become one with the wall. Okay? And then they're like, amen. Now, from where I am, I can only see their torsos, right? I'm like, here it goes. Then all of a sudden, I see the, the circle breaking up, like they're letting go of hands, and I'm like, yes. But then the torsos turn and start heading toward the bunk until the torsos are lined up outside of the bunk I'm hiding in. And one of the guys leans down. He's like, hey, bro. 
she's like, come on. I'm like, I'm tired. Aren't you guys tired? He's like, come on. They're like, come on, come on. Again, the guys who would not take no for an answer. So I am like a, a little kid throwing a tantrum at that point. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever. And I, all right, let's do this. I'm mad. I'm letting everybody know I'm mad. Just like a child. Looking back, I was an absolute child. And I'm in the middle of the circle, and they get in the circle, and they connect hands, and they're praying, and the guy starts singing, and I'm just like waiting for this nightmare to be over. And then all of a sudden, one of the guys breaks rank from the circle and steps into the circle with me. And where he was standing, um, they just immediately connected hands. So the circle still closed, but now there's someone in it with me. Now, I had watched intently, and this had never happened with anyone else. So I'm like, okay, what's going on? So they're praying, and the guy's singing, and the guy's standing right in front of me in the circle, and, and it's kind of getting a little louder. Singing's getting a little louder. The prayer's getting a little, a little louder, a little more urgency in their voices. Then the guy in the circle looks at me and says, you need to forgive somebody. And I went, that sounds reasonable. You know, I don't have to be a b- believer to, to think that that sounds reasonable. So I'm not mad at him or anything. I'm like, okay, just nodding in agreement. And they're praying, and the guy's singing, and it's getting a little louder. And he looks at me and he says, no, you need to forgive someone. Now, because it's, you know, me, zero to 60, I'm, I'm immediately mad. I'm like, dude, I heard you the first time. Okay? And they're praying a little louder. The guy starts singing a little louder. It was weird. And then the guy puts his hands on my shoulders and practically yells, you need to forgive somebody. Immediately I feel Many years, he was my closest friend. We got into all kinds of trouble together. We're out there running amok, complete. You know, we're we're criminals and we're drug addicts and we're drug dealers, and we would get together and just laugh and laugh. And the night I got arrested, that ultimately led to me going to prison. He was arrested with me. A couple days later, he was out. I was still in. So the rumor mill started to turn. Maybe he ratted you out. And I'm like, this dude is my greatest friend on the planet. That did not happen. They said, well, you'll know when you go to court because when you go to trial, he's going to have to come out and testify against you. And I said, well, we'll prove to you all that it wasn't him. So I end up taking a plea deal, which basically means I agree to plead guilty to a certain sentence, which was four years in state prison, to avoid going to a trial. So I never had my trial. So now I'm making my merry way to state prison, and the rumor mill is still turning. And it's like, man, he's spending a lot of time with your daughter's mom and your daughter. And I'm like, no, this, you know, he's, he's just trying to help them out. And. 
You know, like the rumors keep coming. Dude, I think they're together. I think they're a couple. I think he's raising your daughters. Now, now you got to understand, just just one, on one hand, I'm a I'm a criminal and I've got uh, I'm just wired completely wrong. On another hand, I'm also a man. So that pride starts swelling up, right? So now I'm angry. I'm believing all the rumors and I'm angry. And I used to spend days on end meditating and fantasizing about how I could kill him. And I don't mean for, you know, just joking. How I could really do it. Now, fast forward, I got out of prison. You know, I go to this 12-step meeting. I'm on this mountain at this retreat. I am not thinking about this guy at all. He could not be further from my thoughts. Right? And then you need to forgive somebody. Boom, he's there. Now, it must have shown on my face somehow because the guy in the circle with me immediately got excited. Do you see him? And I said, yes. So they're singing loud now, praying loud now. And this guy puts his hands on my shoulder, both hands, and he looks me in the eye and he says, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Now, I didn't hallucinate. I knew that this was not my old friend. But in the moment, it felt like that's where the apology was coming from. It was weird. He said it again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything I've done to hurt you and betray you. Will you forgive me? And I said, yes, and started to sob like a child. We're talking ugly crying. In my mind, I remember thinking, like, you're making an idiot of yourself. Stop. But I couldn't stop. You know, <laughs> it was just, I was just lost in it, weeping and sobbing uncontrollably. And I came down that mountain a different person. That's where my journey began. That's where my true journey began when I came down that mountain. I got plugged into that church. I got, I was just plugged in. I was going to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek, men's fellowship, 12 step, the, the singles gathering, like I just could not get enough. My nose is locked into his word. I'm only fellowshipping with other believers. I, he is changing my life. And he's not putting band-aids on the broken stuff. He's actually remaking my life over as if I'd always been the right guy who made the right choices and the right decisions, as if I'd always been my parents' greatest dream for a son they could have, my daughter's best-case scenario for a dad, like he remade me again. And I'm watching it all unfold, and it's mind-boggling to me. And I remember as a new believer, I'm going to close with this, as a new believer, I wanted to serve in the church because new believers are like that. They're passionate. They want to they wanna be used by God, you know? And uh, pastor said, what do you know how to do? And I'm thinking, I said, pastor, I've only been a drug addict. Like, I, I don't know how to do anything. Started when I was 14. Like, I, I don't know how to do anything. 
He said, no, think harder. So I really, really began to think. And I remember while I was in prison, uh, one of my fellow inmates had taught me a few chords on a guitar. And I said, well, I know four chords. He said, that's it. That's all you need to play every worship song known to man. (laughs) Those four chords. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. So that's where my journey in ministry began. I would strum a guitar on a Thursday night at an in-home Bible study in Apple Valley, California. And a gal named Cheryl would come and sing. And that's where it all began for me. And those were some of the greatest days of my life, strumming a guitar in that living room. One night I showed up and pastor said, hey, Cheryl called out sick. I said, okay, we'll bypass the worship. And he said, well, I had a thought. I said, what's that? He said, I thought you might try singing. And I said, brother, that's the devil talking to you. (laughs) That did not come from God. And he's like, I don't know, I just can't, I just can't shake it. I just, I think you should, he's just another person, another human being in my path that will not take no for an answer. So on a Thursday night in a living room in Apple Valley, California, for about 10 people, I sang for the first time in my life. I was 24 years old. I sang, Lord, I lift your name on high. And it was the first time I had ever sung. And I did not stop singing ever since that night. And my journey in worship and in ministry as a worship leader and a songwriter has taken on many forms. I've served in many areas, many areas in this world, all armed with the same thing, the name of Jesus and these six gyms. And I've seen God do some amazing things. About two and a half years after my release from that prison, I was at a church singing one night. I was invited to sing a song I wrote. And I sang, and it was all over, and I had carpooled with someone. So I was waiting for him so we could leave. And I was standing in the back of the sanctuary, and there was a group of people having a conversation near me. And I couldn't make out what they were saying, and I wasn't trying to be nosy or anything. But I could hear the sound of their voices. Kind of sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, kind of muffled like that. (laughs) But I could hear one word clear as day, and that word was rose. So they would be talking, and it was like, rose. Rose. I thought, this is so strange. By the third or fourth time, it was so strange that I stood to my feet and approached the group. And the person nearest me turned and saw me coming and said, you have such a beautiful voice. I said, well, thank you. God bless you. I said, I overheard your conversation. Is your name Rose? She said, yes, it is. I said, Rose, what's your last name? She said, Gunn. My name is Rose Gunn. And immediately my mind flashed back to the return address on every one of those cards I got in prison. Every card signed, Love Rose. And I thought to myself, no way. So I proceeded to tell Rose who I was. So I tell her, and she does that thing that people do when they're being polite, but they have no idea what you're talking about. She just smiled real big and nodded. I went, no, you ain't getting it, lady. Uh Uh-uh. So I tell her again, 
And once again, I'm like, no, like inside I'm having all these emotions, like I'm going nuts inside that I'm looking at her and she's just, I'm like, no, no. So the third time I break the whole story down into little itty bitty pieces. And this time she slips out of her chair and falls on the ground at my feet shouting, praise God at the top of her lungs. Everyone in the church turned to look, and she's lying at my feet, shouting, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Now she gets it, I thought. (laughs) Now Rose was a firecracker. She was a prayer warrior. She prayed for me every day of her life. She used to tell me, you're going to do great things, I just know it. You're going to do great things, I just know it. We would be talking on the phone, and she would just break out in tongues, like right in the conversation. So what did you guys have? Well, we had pizza last night. She'd just start going off, and I'd just let her go. And then when she came out, I'd say, yeah, I had the pepperoni. And then we just kept, it just became the norm. It just literally became the norm. And years later, when Rose was on her deathbed in a nursing home, I was standing next to that bed. Holding her hand, praying the last prayer she prayed this side of heaven. And in that moment, God said, Richard, this was all about my servant, Rose. I orchestrated all of it so that she would not be alone on this night. Because I didn't want her to be afraid taking this last step from death to life. So I orchestrated it all so you'd be here at this bed. And because he's so good, friends, he didn't forget his son who ran away from home to join the punk rock circus. He knew that passion on the inside of me because he put it there, that musical passion. And now I have literally traveled the world telling people about a little old lady named Rose and singing songs that, in my opinion, just fall from heaven. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we serve. I want to play a song for you guys in closing, and then we're going to bring the pastor up. You know, I told you the the way that Rose used to always tell me that you're going to do great things. You're going to do great things. And a few years ago, I was invited to to our nation's capital. And if you've ever been standing there on, what is that, Philadelphia facing the White House, just a few doors down to your left, if you turn your head, a couple of doors down is the uh, Ronald Reagan building. And I was invited there to uh, sing one of my songs for a fundraiser for um, soldiers returning home with uh, PTSD and TBI, traumatic brain injury. So they were raising funds, and this person actually heard me singing at a NASCAR race and asked me if I'd come and sing at this event. Now, I knew what I wrote this song for, but when she heard the song, it made her feel a certain kind of way. And she was very honest and open. She said, I want my donors feeling that way when I ask them for money. So that was her motivation. 
Now, who were the donors? The room was filled with members of Congress and their spouses. Four-star generals. I remember my wife and I walking in, and it was just all these beautiful people. And uh, I was asked to sing one song, the song that the lady had heard. And uh, all the lights went out, and a single beam of light fell from the top onto a microphone just shining down on me. And I knew that was my cue. The, the MC was uh, Brian Kilmeade from Fox News. He was, the, he was the MC, and he had shared a few things, and then he stepped out of the way, and the stage went black, and the light fell down onto that mic, and I climbed the stairs walking across the dark stage to the mic. And in the back of my mind, I can hear this little old lady voice. You're going to do great things. not the end because you've fallen down. Tired of trying on your own. Your father's calling you come home. never be too far away just stop and turn around he's made a way he said I'll never leave you alone Hear him calling you, come home. This is the sound of people falling on their knees. This is the sound of the forgiven walking free. This is the sound of happy endings, the sound of your heart mending. This is the sound of never-ending love. This is the sound of coming home.
cast your cares upon the King of Kings. He said, I'll be with you till the end. Hear the sound of the one who laid down his life for his friends. This is the sound of people falling on their knees. This is the sound of the forgiven walking free. And this is the sound of happy endings, the sound of your heart mending. This is the sound of never-ending love. This is the sound of coming home. This is the sound of forgiveness. The sound of a witness, trade the sound of sticks and stones for the sound of coming home. Hear the sound of a sunrise, hear the silence at midnight, trade the sound of all alone. For the sound of coming home. This is the sound of people falling on their knees. This is the sound of the forgiven. We're walking free. <laughs> this is the sound of happy endings, the sound of your heart mending. This is the sound of never ending love. This is the sound of coming home. This is the sound of coming home, yeah. This is the sound of coming home. This is the sound of coming home, yeah. This is the sound of coming home. God bless you all.